is that those green Connect cards, which are in your bulletin, sometimes we go through the service so quickly that we don't really have a time to fill them out before the offering plates come by. So if you would, would you please fill those offering or those uh, green Connect cards out? And would you place them in the buckets that you'll see as you leave the gym after worship? Whether you're a member or this is the first time you've been here, would you please fill out one of those green Connect cards and place it in the buckets that will be by the exits as you leave. Announcement number two is, many of us enjoyed a f wonderful fall festival yesterday, and um, it was obvious that you thought your pastors hadn't had a shower in a long time, so you got to dunk them repeatedly in a big trough of water. Um, we're thankful for that. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. I appreciate the humiliation. Uh, some of you, though, left some stuff. And so if you left things, including a retainer, um, please see Christy Van Wy, and um, you can retrieve the things that you may have left. If you think you've lost something at the Fall Festival, please see Christy. Christy, would you raise your hand? We see that hand. Thank you very much. All right. Please see Christy after the service. All right. Now, if you would, let's give your attention to Colossians chapter 2. We're in a series called The Greatness of Ordinary Grace. And we're in this series because in the midst of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, in the midst of a relatively exciting time with football and the fanaticism that comes around the football season, we want you to know that in the midst of all of the intense ups and downs of the fall, we want you to know that the way that you grow in the Christian life is actually very ordinary. And God has given us what are called means of grace, the word, the word preached, the sacraments of the church and prayer as the ordinary means whereby he wants you to grow in your understanding of the gospel and the application of it in your life. And so this morning, we're going to continue what Scott began last week in thinking about baptism. And I want to show you from Colossians chapter 2 how to watch a baptism. How do you watch it? What do you see? Let's look. If you're willing and able, let's stand and we'll read from Colossians chapter 2 beginning at verse 8 down through verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority in him also you were circumcised with circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in order in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Everyone is looking for a revolution. Everyone is looking for a revival. 
And we are praying for that. Everyone is looking for the experience that's going to take them to the next level and the next step. Everybody is looking for that thing that they can do, that they can participate in, that will be the thing that will help them really have a growing relationship with the Lord and help them to understand the beauty of the gospel. But what if, what if, though we always are looking for the experience, we're always looking for the high, as it were, we're always looking for the great thing, what if God intended to change you by something very ordinary, something very commonplace? What if he intended to change you by something very routine? Like, imagine if God, against the empire of the world and the way that things normally operate with these amazing experiences, what if God, through some kind of ironic subtlefuge, some mysterious outworking of his work in our midst, intended to change you, not radically at one point in time, but actually gradually, bit by bit by bit, over the weeks, in worship. And what if he gave you a way to participate in that? Where slowly but certainly over time, bit by bit by bit, he formed and molded and chiseled and shaped you more and more into his image. What if he gave you a picture, a portal that you look at in the midst of a gymnasium in worship that brought you into the very throne room of God? where you saw the deepest realities that you could only dream of seeing now in time and space in the midst of worship with his people? What if he invited you into something that wasn't just a tradition? What if he invited you into something that wasn't just a rite or a ritual or an act that is a public pronouncement of our faith? What if he invited you into something that was so deep and mysterious and yet powerful that it didn't just change the one to whom it was administered, but it actually changed you. What if God were to use something so ordinary like baptism to shape you? Not just in receiving it, but in watching it. Friends, I'm going to argue in Colossians chapter 2 that he does that very thing. Many of us have grown up in a church where we have seen many, many baptisms. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to see some here as well. And we think, well, that baptism is just for the person to whom it's administered. But it's not. Paul shows us amazing realities about the nature of baptism in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul teaches us how to watch a baptism, how to look back on it, how to assess it, how to apply it, how to, as we read earlier, how to improve upon our own baptism. And he gives us four things to see. You don't just look at baptisms. You look through them to see four very deep realities. And what are those four realities? You see, number one, you see the gospel. Number two... You see God's faithfulness. Number three, you see your own baptism. And number four, you see your future. You see the gospel. You see God's faithfulness. You see your own baptism. And you see the future. You see your future. Now, what do I mean by that? Baptism clarifies and magnifies. 
the deep realities of God's work in our midst. Have any of you ever used, if you have a pool, you know what this is like. You've ever, you know, you have pool toys. Or if you've ever been to the beach and you lose your glasses. Anybody ever lost glasses at the beach? Yes, thank you. I lost great glasses in the beach with, when Lauren and I were on vacation. I'm still a little bitter about it. But you know, when you lose your glasses and you try to find something, you look for pool toys in the pool, what happens? You look, you look from the outside in, but you can't, things are distorted. You can't really see them very well. You can't, the waves are crashing. You can't see things underneath the surface. But when you put the goggles on and you stick your face into the water, what happens? Two things happen immediately. Things are clarified and things are magnified. The reason we use water is because it is a picture of Jesus washing us, setting us apart, making us holy unto him. Water cleanses. Water sets us apart. It clarifies and it magnifies these four realities. First, the gospel. Well, where do I get that in the text? In Colossians, Paul is arguing from Rome while he's in prison that the empire of the world with all of its complex thought structures and marketing campaigns, just as true in ancient Rome as it was, ancient Colossae as it is today, the empire of the world wants you to think that through the modern ideas of success, your life will be fulfilled. And Paul, even from prison, is pushing against that. And there are people in Colossae who have said that the Christianity that Paul preached to you, he didn't tell you the whole story. There's another story. The story is that it's angels in heaven who exist to intercede for you. Now, hang with me. There is a heresy in Colossae about angels, where angels would intercede for the people. And so you want to pray to this God that Paul told you about, who actually pray to angels. And they've shown this from ancient artifacts and ancient ruins that they found, even ancient amulets that they have found, on which were inscribed words like this. Michael, Gabriel, Oriel, Raphael, protect the one who wears this necklace. Flee, O hated one, for Solomon pursues you. They begin to like wear like Christian jewelry. And they begin to like believe that in praying to angels, they created this whole like Gnostic weird religion that downvalued, devalued Christ and raised the premium of your good works to be sanctified. And Paul says to them, look what he says in verse 8. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He's referring to that kind of heresy, this the philosophy of praying to angels and having intercessors. According to human tradition, it's made up, brothers. According to the elemental spirits of the world, it's, 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 it's pagan, sisters, and not according to Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul uses the word fullness because that's the word that these people who made up this pagan religion, it looked like Christianity, used. They used fullness all throughout their speech. And so Paul co-ops that and says, the fullness of the life you're expected to live, like you're wanting, is in Jesus. You've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And then in verse 11, he does something very interesting. In him also, in him in addition to this. So, the fullness that you're seeking is found in Jesus, but there's more. In him also. And then Paul says, 
I want you to think about your baptism. I want you to reflect on your baptism and see your baptism like a prism through which you understand the world more clearly. And he says, verse 12, having then been buried with him in baptism, which also you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. In other words, if you're going to push back against all that tries to cater to your affections and to your thoughts, you have to learn how to look through your baptism to see the truth. And what is the truth that baptism shows us? Verse 13, it shows us the gospel. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is your participation in the world and all of the sin and all of the culture that you accommodated yourself to, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses, the cleansing of baptism, wiped clean, and by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The gospel, Paul says, is the good news that when you see a baptism, you think about the washing away of your sin and you think about you being set apart, triumphant in Christ over every other authority that seeks to own you. Your sin is taken away, in other words, and there's a righteousness, a triumphal righteousness that is given to you. That, Paul says, is one of the things you see pictured in baptism. So when you see me or you see Scott holding a child or baptizing an adult, you should think, first of all, of the picture of the gospel, of the washing away of the sin and of the triumph that they have in Christ, his righteousness been given to them. Now, does that actually happen for a child? Well, of course not. They can't believe yet. Baptism does not save that child, but it sets him apart, just like circumcision set an ancient Israelite child apart into a visible, tangible, real community, which takes us to the second thing Paul intends for you to see. Baptism not only shows you the gospel, cleansing you of your sin, giving you the triumphal righteousness of Christ, but secondly, he wants you to see the community. He wants you to see God's faithfulness to you in bringing you into a community. And this, quite frankly, is an aspect of baptism that almost every other religion in the world gets better than you do. Did you know that? When you are baptized... In Colossians, Paul says you, second person plural, all throughout it. And then he uses first person plural, us, and our. He's saying when you are baptized, you are baptized into one another, into Christ, as he manifests himself in the visible and physical world around us now. And when you see a baptism, you're not just seeing a public declaration of faith, although for an adult it is that you are seeing primarily that they are being grafted into the visible, real body of Christ in time and space. What is spiritual and invisible is manifested in a visible and a physical way as somebody is brought into the community of Christ. 
Here's how one commentator put it. If with Christ you died in your baptism to the principles of autonomous individualism and consumerism that still hold the world captive, why then do you live in a way that suggests you're still in the iron grip of the modern way things work? Why do you submit yourselves to its regulations to consume as if there were no tomorrow, to live as if community were an impediment to personal fulfillment, to live as if everything were disposable, including relationships, the unborn, and the environment? Why do you allow this deceitful vision of your autonomous individualism to still have such a hold on you that you do not understand the value of Christian community? Don't you know that copulating with the idols of this culture is like climbing into bed with a corpse that is already decomposing? It's a very powerful, very gross, frankly, image. But he's saying that when you are baptized into a church, you're being brought into a visible people. When Paul uses this term, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. He is saying that it is not just referring to the physical act of circumcision in the Old Testament. He is saying that you are cutting off all of the former allegiances that you had before your baptism and that you are now receiving the name of the Lord Jesus Christ upon you and your identity has changed so that yes, lawyer, banker, dad, husband, all those other identities are still true of you, but they're secondary to your Christian identity. When a child is baptized, for example, when you watch that, you are seeing that they are brought into a community of faith. Now, they, are, they, are, they don't yet have a faith of their own yet, perhaps. We don't know. We can't determine that or discern that until they're older and have the developmental ability to articulate it. But they are being brought into a community of faith where we together as the church help hold that child's feet to the fire, as it were, of the gospel. And we say what was pictured for you in your baptism were the blessings of God's faithfulness to his people, that he will be with you, that he will be your God. And we want you to believe in those promises that were proclaimed in your baptism. And when you believe in those promises, when the condition of your baptism, that is faith, is met, all those promises are true for you. But if you do not believe, child, then you receive the covenant curses of God, just as everyone who would receive them without baptism would experience. When, a, when, a, um, when you talk about baptism or you talk about certain initiation rites being brought into the visible church, talk about these things with a Muslim or a Hindu, I'm always surprised by how much more they understand this than I, than I frankly, I'm still struggling to understand. They know that when they take an identity with their body, their religious body, they are severing ties and they are identifying themselves with this new people to whom they are being initiated into. And when John the Baptist was bringing about baptism, he was saying that we are now opening this up, not just to men, but also to women. We are showing the world that you are brought into the visible covenant community of faith through baptism. And it is not something that you do as an elective. It is crucial and essential because you're being brought into the community. Do you see that? It is the initiatory right of being brought into the covenant community. One person uh, 
says this. He says that uh, this people, not merely an indivisible, uh, or invisible family known to God alone, but an actual company of people in time and space, the church in which Christ is confessed as Lord, an outward and visible entry into this outward and visible family is accomplished through our baptisms. Let's apply this just for a second, shall we? Many of us, um, when we face criticism, when people at work criticize us or cut us down, if we, are, if we operate by performance metrics and we are driven by success and performance measures, when that criticism comes to us, we either get self-defensive or we're crushed by it. And it is only through the strengthening of your identity and the gospel that you're able to face criticism and be able to take criticism, hold it into the light for what it is, and to say, is there a kernel of truth, no matter how painful it might be about me? Like, even if the tone was a really negative tone, is there something that might be true about me in this criticism? And we have the ability to assess that because our identities are not based upon what that person may think of us or even what everyone in the world thinks of us. But it's rooted in what Christ Jesus thinks of you, and he thinks you're amazing. He loves you. He thinks you're terrific. He sings over you with his love. And therefore, when we receive criticism, we're strengthened to be able to uh, receive those things by being reminded through the sacraments again and again and again, particularly of baptism, that you're set apart with a new identity in Christ. And therefore, you're able to receive the blows of criticism that come to us in a way that doesn't make you um, radically insecure people or defiantly arrogant. It makes you receive the criticism and assess it, see if there's a kernel of truth, be gracious in the reception of it, and learn from it. Another thing that's interesting about, about um, baptism in the nature of the community is that we ha- allow our children to watch these baptisms. In fact, we try, whenever there's the Lord's Supper or a baptism, we try to let our kids come and see it. Because by doing that, we are reminding people that we are set apart as a new community in, in the midst of Tulsa and Owasso. We are Christ's people. And Paul is trying to say the same thing in Colossians chapter 2. Guys, you've put off the old flesh. You're Christ's. You have a new identity. You have everything that you need in Him. And we, quite frankly, as a congregation and as Christians today, we don't have any problem scudding our children halfway around the globe for a practice or taking them to engage in, you know, test preparations whenever the SATs come up. We want them to be able to practice their sports. We want them to be able to practice their reading, writing, and arithmetic. But when it comes to strengthening their faith, we say, well, that's really not that necessary. All that's really important is that they, have a, they believe in Jesus. And we devalue the regular participation in worship Instead, what if God were to say to you, just as much as you value sports or academics or whatever, you are also to value gathering together as God's people because it is in the practice and the routine of seeing the sacraments administered, of receiving them, that you actually see the gospel more clearly. Things are magnified and things are clarified. And you may not walk out of worship where we baptize people 
Or we do the Lord's Supper and think, oh, that was amazing. My life has changed forever. But maybe you changed just a trifle. Just like a coach at a practice teaches you a little different way to adjust your technique so that your swing is more solid. So that you're able to catch that ball, run the right routes. So that you're able to understand how to take tests, whatever it is. Worship is supposed to be regular, ordinary, and in that it shapes you far more powerfully over time than the radical experiences of one-off events. Worship is formative. And the chief, one of the chief ways he does that is through the waters of baptism, seeing the gospel and seeing the community in which you are now a part. Are you with me so far? It's so important. The third thing that, Jesus, that Paul shows us is that it reminds you of your own baptism. What was done when you were baptized? If you were baptized as a child or as an adult, you were brought into a covenant community and you were set apart, like in 1 Corinthians 7, where it says that the children of at least one believer are sanctified. They are now holy. Even though they may not yet personally believe in faith, they're holy because they're part of God's visible church. When you are baptized, that picture is signified in the baptism. And that promise is indeed sealed on your heart so that when you believe it, all of the virtues of the blessings of the covenant become yours. So it's not just that one day, someday, when you believe you're going to have money deposited into a bank account. No, you have the bank account. And it is full of money, as it were. And when you believe is when you turn 18, so to speak, and you get access to it. Martin Luther, whenever he was tempted, um, he wouldn't say on such and such a date, I became a Christian, I walked in the aisle, I signed a card. Martin Luther would always say, Babsitatus ego. I have been baptized. I baptized or babsdatus sum, I have been baptized. He would always say whenever he was faced with temptation, I have been baptized. I have been set apart. This is not who I am. I am not one who gives in to sexual immorality. I'm not one who gives in to, the, to wanting to get back at this person. I've been baptized. I've been set apart. And so therefore, when you see a baptism, you are to remember the gospel, the community, but you also remember your own baptism, that you too, Christian, have been set apart. You too have been made part of God's visible covenant community, and you therefore should live into that reality. It is the chief marker of who you now are. And lastly, it's a picture of our future. In Colossians, one of the things that they tried to spin for them is that we want you to know that you're, you can be protected now and forever by praying to angels, Ariel or Michael or Gabriel, all these guys who were imprinted on these amulets and in these ancient manuscripts in Colossae. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Jesus triumphs over all of your adversaries now. And we get to experience that now in part and one day in full. And when you watch a child being baptized or when you watch an adult being baptized... You look not at it, but you look through it, and you see your own future because you see not what they are now, but what they can be one day. When you look at brothers and sisters in this church, you don't look at them as what they are now. You look at what they could be. 
How else is it possible to be part of a church where people whose personalities just rub against yours? Like, how can we exist together if we don't train ourselves to see what we can be one day, not what we are now? How is the world going to look at the church and see what in the world binds them together? They have nothing in common. They're socioeconomically diverse. They're racially diverse. They're culturally diverse. How can they possibly call themselves dear friends, brothers and sisters? It's because we don't see each other for what we are now. We see each other for what we can be. And C.S. Lewis says this is actually the, the way he understood how to have friendships with people with whom he didn't always have things in common. Lewis, Lewis says that if today you were to see that person's glorified self, if you were to see that baptized brother or sister for what they will be one day, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them because you have never met in the church a mere mortal. And if we as a congregation, when we find ourselves um, frustrated by the actions of other people. If you let the gospel empower you to be able to approach that person in humility, knowing, aware of your own sin, but yet bold, not afraid of their rejection of you, to in love confront them because you see what they can be, it changes the church. It changes your parenting. It changes the way you view your spouse. I mean, if Lauren looked at me for what I am now, oh my, she would be frustrated every day. But if she looks at me of what I can be, she has a sense of hope. And when you see these children in our church that are, that are non-communion members, that have been, they've been baptized, but they haven't yet come to the Lord's table because they haven't yet professed their faith in Christ. When you see these young Christians set apart, part of the visible church, when you see these young boys and girls, you teach them and you care for them and you love them and you encourage them, not for what they are now, knocking over bubblegum machines and tearing through the halls, but what they will be one day. Because if you saw them as they will be, you would be tempted to fall down and worship because of how beautiful they are. And the good news of the ordinary means of grace is that God uses the ordinary things of life to change us in the most extraordinary ways. Through his preached word, through the sacraments of the church, and through prayer. And when we watch baptisms together, we look not at the baptism, but you look through the water, as it were, to see the gospel, to see the community and God's faithfulness to you, to see your own baptism if you've been baptized and the strengthening work of that baptism to help you amidst the temptation. And you see a picture of this person and of your own future. Do you see it? It may seem very ordinary, but it is an extraordinary privilege for us through the ironic power of the Lord Jesus to use ordinary water to help us see through it to extraordinary and deep realities that are meant to shape us and to change us. We are people who are ordinary. We are people who walk by faith in the ordinary warp and woof of life. And that is how God changes us. And he is faithful to do so. Because Jesus wants you in the midst of the ordinary preaching of the gospel to again see him.
that he loves you so much as to bring you into a visible community of faith where the hands you shake and the hugs you feel today are the extension of his hands, of his arms around you to encourage you and to strengthen you. And to help us as a church recognize that we are in this together. And my children and I, myself, need you as much as your children and you need me. Because God uses his body. Let me give you one more analogy to close. Have any of you ever been involved in an organ transplant? Ever had family who have had organ transplants? You know that when you take an organ out of the body, you want as fast as possible to put it in the new one. And they take great care to keep this liver, this kidney, whatever the organ may be, alive. They protect it. They put it on ice. They wrap it. They guard it. They know where it is at all times, and they want as fast as possible to get it from the one who has donated the organ into the donor recipient. They do not waste time, which is why when you hear that there's an organ available, you run as fast as you can to that hospital. The same is true in the church. Our neighborhoods are filled with people who are like organs outside of bodies. It is abnormal. It is not the way it was meant to be. And when you become part of the visible community of faith, as it were, you are implanted in a new body, part of them. And that's what happens when you transfer your membership into this church or you come into membership of this church through the rite of baptism. It is ordinary, and yet through seeing it done, you see extraordinary realities. So, friends, let us not be people who are always longing for the extraordinary because what if, what if God intended to change you through the very ordinary means of grace? What if he wanted to change you as you watch a baptism, as we will, Lord willing, here in two weeks? What if he intended to shape you by showing you through the Lord's table as I'm about to administer that it is through the ordinary bread and wine that Jesus intends to show you extraordinary and deep realities of your heart? He does. Do you know him? He's here. Run to him in faith. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to see that in the ordinary means of grace, you do extraordinary things. Help us, Lord, to understand the way we view baptism is not just by passive observation, but we see the gospel. We see the community into which you have called us and the one being baptized. You help us to reflect upon our own baptism, and you show us a picture of the future. You show us a picture of what we will one day be, now set apart in part, and one day we will be sinless in your presence because of the finished work of Jesus, covered in your righteousness. Would you strengthen one another, strengthen me, strengthen us to see one another in that light and to so be a church where we can be honest about our sin because we don't see each other as we are, but we see each other as we will be. Father, help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.